The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, thank you for gathering us here, for putting us in front of your word and drawing near to teach. Your word is a a treasure, it's a lamp to our feet, a light for the path that we are to walk through this world, and sometimes that path, that walk is difficult and hard. So you give us light even for the hard places, especially for the hard places. So thank you for that, thank you for this, and will you take this passage this morning and shine light from it for our help. Here and in following weeks, we touch on some difficult things, and I pray you would, you would use them to, to help us. Help us be faithful, to help us to be clear and bold, and gracious, wise, just hold fast to you in the midst of a world that, that doesn't know you, doesn't like you. We need your help with this, Lord. These are, these are truths. A lot of them are probably familiar to us. They're truths that we need kind of refreshed and, and repressed into us. And so please do that this morning. Teach. Thank you, Lord. Teach us now, we pray. Thank you. Amen. Most people don't like to be rejected. Generally speaking, we'll do just about anything we can to avoid being disliked, belittled, insulted, let alone actually physically attacked and hurt. We don't like that. We we like to get along. And yet most of us here this morning are Christians and we realize something. Fundamentally, we Christians, we know some things, we understand some things. We see, even if, not completely, even through a a glass dimly, we see some things that the rest of the world does not know. Not really. We know God, and we know his message. And the more that message is, is understood, the more clear, the more deeply, the more widely that message is heard and then understood and grasped by the world and all that it means, all its, all its permutations, all, all that it requires, all that it promises, yes, but commands. The more that's understood, the more the world, surprisingly, good news that it is, the world doesn't want it, doesn't like it, rejects it, in fact. And those of us who believe it and are talking about it. Biblical Christians. The world will reject us. And that brings us to our passage today in the middle of Matthew 10. Beginning today and then going on for several more paragraphs, so therefore several weeks after this, Jesus is going to address the topic of persecution. The persecution of Christians, rejection by the world because of Jesus. Not because of how we might act or how we might vote or whatnot, because of Jesus. 
And as Jesus does that, there are going to be a few things here we can learn that help us persevere through such persecution. This is a natural topic that he brings up right here, given what he just said the previous passage. A couple weeks back, we looked at the, the passage right before where Jesus sends out his 12 disciples on their very first solo ministry endeavor. He's sending them out into this traveling preaching ministry, which is not what they are all always going to do, not what most of us are called to do. We're all a little bit different, but we're all in some way or another called to ministry, called to announce and explain that the kingdom of God is at hand in Jesus. And it means the kingdom for everybody. And as we talk about that, it will find opposition. People will reject us. Always have from the very beginning on till today. So Jesus brings that up. It's it's sobering in some ways. It's not fun to think about in some ways, but it should be helpful as we consider today and in, in the following weeks what he has to say that'll help us not to shrink back, not, not to be um, kind of withdrawn and dealing with lives of avoidance, but to engage in a, a helpful and wise and even crazily joyful way. So that's where we're going. Let me read the passage, verses 16 to 25. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to clarify one little detail, which is probably confusing to us. It's a small detail, but we need to be understanding it. And then I'll draw two observations related to persecution. So this is chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew chapter 10. Before we get into the the heart of the passage here, we look closely at a detail at the end of verse 23. Very end there, we see Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, which we've seen him do before. We've discussed that title, what it means, how it comes from a couple different places in the Old Testament, has a couple different kind of thematic rivers attached there. So we know he's talking about himself, but when he says to his disciples, You're not going to have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, chances are most of us today hear that and think that he's talking about his second coming his glorious return when the Son of Man comes. That's how that language kind of hits us. That's not what he means. 
As his original listeners would have understood, he's referring to Daniel 7, one of the main places where the Son of Man language comes. And if you were to look at that passage, you'd realize it's a vision describing, picturing the Son of Man coming on the clouds into heaven, into the presence of the Ancient of Days, the, the, the figure of God there, to be given the throne to rule. That was a well-known passage. It's a vision describing this coming authority of the Messiah, how God would give to his Messiah the right to reign. Now, we understand a whole lot more about that, about, about the Messiah, about how the Messiah comes to power, about how his kingdom comes over time. He was born the king of the Jews, said, said the wise men. But of course, he began to exercise his authority when he taught, say, the Sermon on the Mount. And then as he exercised his power, and in particular, when he came on the clouds into heaven after he was raised from the dead and ascended, we understand more of how he comes in power, comes to power, but the point for this morning is that what Jesus is essentially saying to them is, you've only got a little bit of time here. You won't have finished all of the towns all up and down this land here before I come to power. Before I come to power. So there's a brief period of time here in which I am, then, I, then after which I will have my kingdom reign kind of up and running. So with that clarified, with our understanding of what he means by come there in that verse, let's now look at the passage and draw two observations. Here's the first. When intimidating opposition comes, God is in it and will help. When intimidating opposition comes, God is in it, he's, he's in it with a purpose, he's up to something, and he will help with that. Verse 16, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples on their first training mission, and he's telling them something here in, in the following passages that's going to help them with their immediate next work here, but also something that's kind of setting them up for the lifetime of work that he's called them to. And whatever opposition they would meet, and as he said, there, there's going to be some, it's going to get a lot worse in the following years for them and for us. So he's kind of, he's telling this, setting them up to kind of correct their expectations because, of course, they think this coming to power, it's not, not yeah, it's a short time, it's a real short time, it's going to be weeks or months from now and you're going to become king in Jerusalem they think things are going to go swimmingly here, and of course Jesus knows otherwise. So he says, behold, get this, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of a pack of wolves. If they heard that, if, I mean if they actually heard that, it should have been, what? Because that is not a pretty picture. Sheep in the midst of wolves. That's the paradigm. Jesus is sending them and his church, us, into ministry in this real world. This fallen world full of sin and full of evil. Dark. And the question is not about if we go and engage in ministry. 
He's sending us. We have to go. There's not, not a question about that. And it's not actually a question of what exactly it is you are to do. They have a particular assignment. It's, it's different for them. We're all in different places with different giftings and skills and callings. The issue is how you are to do whatever your particular ministry calling is. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Just like now, back then, that language is very familiar and almost proverbial. And it strikes a, a tricky balance, right? Wise, prudent. Don't be naive about this. Evil is real. Sin is real, and lots of the world is very much against this true Jesus. Very much so. So expect that. Be smart about it. And yet, be out there in the midst of it. Like a dove, deliberately vulnerable. You've got to be out there. You've got to be deliberately vulnerable if you're going to actually be engaged in the mission. So there's the balance here of be prudent, be, be smart about this, but be in this. Deliberately, prudently vulnerable. That's tricky. And there's, there's never any like explicit explanation of every single reality and choice you're going to have to make. There's just this balance of Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Be out there, be engaged, be, be prudent, and be ready. People are going to oppose you. Watch out for men. People, that is, he means. Watch out. Beware. Don't avoid them. Be like a dove, engage with them, but, but watch. Expect that when you go out and be around them, attempting to minister to them, stuff is going to happen. Not nice stuff is going to happen. And what he says in 17 and 18 has first a Jewish, a, a religious context. So he's speaking in a Jewish context. We could probably, particularly if we come from some other religious background, we could probably put in the religious context that is our family upbringing. He's got a religious context, and then he's got a, a secular, societal, even governmental context. So all of life, in other words captured here. The courts and synagogues of 17, there's, there's, there's Judaism, the religion. Describing the internal discipline of, of Judaism, the, the synagogue would examine and could punish by whipping or beating heretical teachers from within its own ranks. It's disciplining how its, how its religious culture is running. So never mind what outsiders might say. They can say whatever they want. They're not, they're not here inside. Never mind what the law says. The synagogue would discipline itself. And he says, you may well encounter that. Paul did often. But then in 18, governors and kings, that's stepping over into the, the governing realm and getting out into the, the public world, which is going to, of course, involve lots of Gentiles. Lots of, of Gentiles either witnessing the court proceedings or engaging that lead with things that lead to the court proceedings. It's going to be in, engaging the wider culture, even total strangers. And what's Jesus' point? Well, as you tell people that the kingdom of God is at hand, as you engage with people and, and talk about this biblical Jesus and clarify, that may not be the one you think. 
the biblical Jesus. And as you clarify, he's the only exclusive, he's the only way that one can be right with God. And that comes only by trusting in his cross, not by how we behave, not our good works. And clarify the reality of, of heaven and, and promised life and reward and the reality of hell, promised righteous, good, just judgment. And then clarify again, the kingdom is at hand in this Jesus only. Because of that, for my sake, this message is going to bother people. They're not going to like that. Now, some will tune you out and not care, but as it becomes increasingly clear, if you're in a conversation where it becomes increasingly clear, all that this means, what, what we're actually getting at, not just the gospel message, but all of its entailments, what that means about society, what that means about sexuality, what that means about business, what that means about marriage, what that means, as that becomes more and increasingly clear, people are going to be increasingly upset. And where they can, they'll argue with you. And where they can, they'll actually haul you in and cause you to stand accused with something of your life or your livelihood, your, your well-being in some way, something on the line. And that's not going to be fun because nobody likes that. I don't know how the disciples heard this, if they were just so caught up with enthusiasm that they were kind of like, yeah, 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 yeah. But if they heard this, this is a gigantic wet blanket. Come on. This is, oof, really? Who likes that? Nobody. We're not aiming for that. We don't want that. But when it happens, not if, when, when it happens, the next thing that often happens in us is, and we wonder if we can handle it. We wonder if we can defend ourselves, if we can marshal the arguments, if we can explain the passages, refute the lies. Sometimes, like in verse 17, that might be a theological or a spiritual duel. And if... if we were in a context where, where, say, Islam was very dominant. There would be plenty of people here who would say, uh-huh, to yep, totally get that. Totally get that. That may apply to other religious contexts, even here in America, even here in this valley. But it's especially reality in lots of other parts of the world where there is first a, a theological, a, a scriptural argument, and then there is violence. But it might start out first, we're talking about theology and, and scripture. And I'm not sure, that, I might end up arguing with elders who are better trained and who are older and wiser. And I'm not sure I can, I can answer all that. I might end up looking like a fool. Can I handle it? But then also it might involve the public arena. The table in the lunchroom with 15 kids suddenly gathered around you, calling you a bigot and hateful and unloving and stupid. What are you going to say? 
That is intimidating. And you stand on an island right there in front of all of those friends. What are you going to do? It's intimidating. You've, you've been there. You can feel that. Or at least you have been aware that you might end up there if you actually said anything. So you, you didn't. Even though you could have. And maybe should have. Now, I'm not saying sometimes wise as serpents means you shouldn't. But sometimes innocent as doves means you should. And maybe you didn't because you realized, I know where this is going to go, and I don't know what's going to happen if it goes there. So, you didn't. You're worried about being humiliated or stumbling over your words. The people around you are going to scoff and mock and deride you and explain everything away, and you're going to look foolish, and you might actually lose something that you value. The whole situation is frightening, and Jesus very encouragingly says, that's going to happen. Great news. <laughs> I'm talking about you in some sense, but come on, I'm talking about me too. It is, in, in one sense, some aspect of the ministry that God has called me to is to do this very thing right here, and for some reason or other way that God's given to me, I can do this. Other people would be terrified to stand here and do this. I'm terrified to go into the lunchroom and talk to the, the 15 other kids or the one other kid. That terrifies me. We're all in this together, and we should start out by saying, honestly, that's intimidating. And right away as I look at that, I wonder, what am I going to do with that? How am I going to handle that? And in America today, I think probably, now the passage is going on, we just read it, you know, the passage is going on to talk about what some of the cost might be, even up to death. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's not where we really live right now in the Western world in America right now. We're short of that, but that doesn't mean it's, it's, it's less challenging or less intimidating. We're right now mostly worried about the conversations and the arguments and the public examinations, the debates. What do we do about that? And what Jesus offers us here is some help with that. He helps us with something so that if we can grab this, we won't be controlled by fear and always moved into silence. As I said, sometimes wisely we should be silent, but not always. He helps us here. What does he do? Well, as usual, because this is always our problem, what he does to help us is he lifts our eyes off of ourselves. He lifts our eyes off of ourselves and off of the here and the now and puts them onto God. He reminds us that when this happens, when this comes, God is in it and will be our help. Of course, in verse 20, he mentions the Spirit. But before that, look again at verse 18. Our minds have to start, I think, right there in verse 18. Set on him. He says, you will be dragged before rulers. Obviously, that's opponents dragging them in. 
in some way kind of forcing something. And their purpose, surely, is they think that uh, you've got to answer for something. That this Jesus you've been talking about is a problem that you need to answer for. So they've dragged you in, he says, for my sake to bear witness before them. And, and how it sounds is answer for that. Tell us something. Defend yourself from them. That's obvious. But what we need to remember, and what we often tend to forget in that situation, is that God is real. And God being sovereign, God is real, and God being sovereign means that that little phrase, for my sake, to bear witness before them, it's not just them setting the agenda, that's actually God setting the agenda. For my sake, to bear witness before them is God saying, I have sent you there for my sake to bear witness before me. I'm in this. I'm in this and I'm up to something in it. To bear witness to me. See, God, God never discovers that his people are in a bind and then comes to help them with the Holy Spirit in verse 20. God sent them into the bind. God sent us into the midst of the wolves. That's where it started. Everything in life, I so appreciated the prayer this morning about nothing happens. In, and in my mind I was thinking, James moved down from the international to the church. In my mind, I went one step further, or in my particular life, which of course I prayed, but because I knew this was coming up, or in my particular life. Nothing happens in your particular life that is not in his hands. If you end up at the lunch table with 15 kids yelling at you, God sent you there. On purpose. He's in it. He's up to something. To bear witness to Jesus Every intimidating situation, every hard thing is brought about by him. And that, as we realize that, that does not eliminate the need to be prudent and wise because we don't know why I'm here in this moment. Am I here to be prudent and wise? Am I here to be vulnerable and open? I, I don't know. I got, I got to still think. I have to still speak. It's me speaking, he says. But I have to realize, we have to start here remembering that I'm not in this alone asking God, would you please come and help? He came already. He's... He arrived with me, even before me. He's here, he's up to something, and he will be your help in that thing. He specifically mentions here the help of the Spirit. Now, I think probably what we kind of want to have said next is, he will be with me, with the Spirit helping me to make sure it all goes awesome. I hope. Please say that. It's not what he says. You have to speak, you have to formulate words, answer arguments. But what he says is don't worry about what or how you're going to say. You do have to speak. You're the, you're the one doing the talking. But it is actually the Spirit of God with you speaking through you, which means sometimes you're going to say brilliant things that you didn't even know you knew. 
that's happened. If, if you've been in these situations and you've, you've heard stuff come out of your own mouth that you thought like, I didn't know I knew that. And I certainly didn't know that connected to that, but there it is. And it appears to be brilliant. And it also might mean that you're going to speak and you're going to feel at a loss, stumped by all the questions and all the arguments, and you're going to feel like you blew it. That is no proof that the Spirit wasn't at work there. That might be evidence that you don't know what he was doing. Sometimes Paul spoke and people became Christians. And sometimes Paul spoke and he got stoned. Who knows? And sometimes Paul, we can, we can read this in the book of Acts, sometimes Paul spoke, got hauled in, examined, and it went terribly. And God met him and said, okay, I want to remind you of something. I've got a lot of people here. I'm up to something. I'm at work. This is, this is for a reason. He didn't deliver him from it, but he carried him through it. We'll talk a little more about that later. You might, you might feel like this went really well. It might, might have gone just terribly, but we don't know what God's doing. We don't know what people will take away from this. I can remember one situation where I, this is years ago, I was in a, a conversation as an onlooker. I wasn't actually deliberately in the conversation. I was an onlooker between a few Christians and a few Muslims who were going at it. And I was watching, and, I, and that was at a particular time in my life. I'd become a Christian, but I was wondering, is this really true? I mean, have I made a mistake here? Is this really true or not? I don't know. So I was just watching. I wasn't saying anything. I'm watching Christians and Muslims going at it. And I think that most of the crowd watching would have said, well, that was interesting, but kind of a truce at the end. I mean, nobody really won. Nobody admitted. Nobody, like, changed their opinions. It just kind of like the argument just kind of died down and went away. And I walked away from that saying, Christianity is true. I know it. I don't think anybody would have thought because the Christians won the argument and proved it to you, but something in what was happening, the answers that were given, the demeanor in which they were given, Something was used by that, by God, in me, the quiet, unseen onlooker. You have no idea who's watching, what kid number 15 is actually doing, what God's doing in kid number 15 at the lunch table. Numbers one through five are furious and not changing, but number 15 is listening. You have no idea. You have no idea. But what, what we are supposed to know is that God's in this. God's up to something in it. God's using you, and God will speak through you. Trust him. Trust him. It may well be uncomfortable, but speak. Step into it. Or maybe wisely don't. I don't know. But don't in fear shrink away. Step into it knowing this is going to be awkward, but God's in it. It's going to be intimidating, but he's up to something. It might be frightening, but he's going to use me. That's the first point. When intimidating stuff happens, God is in it to use it. He'll help us with it. Now, as we move to the second point, I think 
probably, as, at least like as I was like listening to this sermon myself, as I was writing it and thinking about it, probably there's a question that's arising in us a little bit like, yeah, but I'm still really worried about how this is going to go because there's a lot on the line. My reputation, maybe my job. So what about what's going to happen to me? I mean, not just what am I going to say, but what is going to happen to me? That leads to the second point. It doesn't get easier. But here's the second point. When hatred and death comes, endurance leads to eternal life. When hatred and death comes, endurance leads to eternal life. Verse 21, Jesus soberly tells us how bad persecution can get. Immediate family members delivering over Christians to death on purpose. Not as some sort of unforeseen, gives them over to be put to death on purpose. Which seems so extreme and so crazy to us today. I mean, some of us have had family members who have kind of rejected us because of our, our belief in Jesus, but nobody's tried to kill us. This is common in other parts of the world today. Completely common. Especially in the Muslim world and in communist settings, but elsewhere too. Family members, even personally themselves, killing Christian family members. And if even family members, well then of course everybody else too, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Of course, it doesn't mean every single person on earth because obviously some people will become Christians. And obviously some other large group of people will tune it out and really not care that much. But he means all people as in all sorts of people without any distinction, family members and strangers, educated people and uneducated people, powerful people and weak people, rich and poor, everybody, doesn't matter. They're going to hate you. Which may sound a little harder on our modern English ears than he meant it. We, we mean hate in a, usually in a pretty extreme way. What he means by hate is they will strongly oppose you with resolve. The opposite of love and affection. They will reject you. So not something that's in middle, neutral middle, like I don't really care, but strongly oppose you with resolve. All sorts of people, because you belong to Christ, and that will put us in danger. Even up to physical life endangerment and everything short of that. Physical life, pain, imprisonment, loss of job, financial opportunity, food, shelter, education, all the basic elements of life. Christians across time and around the world have experienced all of this. And if we don't right now here in America, we should just regard that as a unique blessing. 
It is not the norm across the world today, nor across time. It is a rather uncommon place we live in right now. A blessing from God for which we should say thank you. The persecution of Christians by the world. Sometimes when when Christians talk about persecution, others say, do you realize, of course, that the Hindus and the Muslims persecute each other too? Yeah, they do. Because the world's full of discord. That That is true. All kinds of people persecute all kinds of people. But the facts of history is that Nothing anywhere ever has remotely approached the scope of the world's persecution of believers in the Jesus of the Bible. That's just the truth. Even still today. That's true. It's not not true for us right here, right now, in, in the worst ways it possibly could be, but that's the way it is. Why is it like that? The Bible tells us in lots of places over and over again, but verses 24 and 25 are as good a summary as any. The world strongly dislikes with resolve Christians because the world strongly dislikes with resolve Christ. Why would that be? Sin has no logic to it. Sin is its ultimate answer, ultimate rationalization, because of sin. Because since the very beginning, the world has been fallen and has been convinced that God is its enemy. And people in our hearts, we are all born wanting to be our own kings and to rule our own worlds. And Jesus isn't having that. He has come in grace and come in mercy to offer forgiveness. He's come and held out his hands, open-handed, even pierced hands. He's held them out and offered to people forgiveness, offered them mercy, shown them compassion and love, and the world said, crucify him. That's what happened. And if that happened to him, if they called Jesus by another name, Satan, we who are in his household shouldn't expect different. That's the way it is. The Bible tells us that over and over again and mentions it here in this passage too. This is the truth one way or another. It will come to us rejection and attack and maybe even death sometimes if, if we stand faithful, dependent on him, come what may. How do we do that? How do we endure? Notice, when he talks about endurance, he doesn't command it. Last part of verse 22 isn't a command, it's, it's a promise, and really it's a help. It's an aid, a, a clue, if you will. How do I bear up faithfully? How do I exist here in this world in the midst of people who don't, don't agree, who do not agree? Well, he says something that should be helped. The one who endures to the end. Not a command, but the one who endures to the end, who endures all this opposition. Something then that we have to get a hold of. 
will be saved. Again, as is our common problem, what he does is he takes our eyes and he lifts them off of ourselves, but particularly off of what we can see here and now, and lifts our eyes up and says, we'll be saved. Saved from being humiliated and scorned and laughed at, so this is all going to go awesome? No. Saved from the the pain of loss, pain of, of death even, from torture? No. Save from the wrath to come. I, th- I think this, this calls us all, I put a little point right here and said, whose wrath controls you? This is, this is the bottom issue of life. Whose wrath controls you? Who do you fear? People who can kill the body? He's going to say this later. Or God, who can kill the body and the soul in hell forever. Everybody fears somebody. Who do you fear? Whose wrath controls you? The one who endures to the end, the one who endures through all the current wrath right now, he makes no promise, will be spared from all that wrath right now. No, maybe not. But the one who endures all the way through it, coming out the other side, whatever that looks like, the one who endures through all that will be spared the wrath to come. That's for real. Saved is about saved from and saved is also about saved to. Because he doesn't just save us from wrath to neutrality. He saves us from wrath to life. Part of the fear that we're dealing with right now with this, the wrath of people are going to take from me what I need and what he's actually putting in front of you is no, you'll be saved to what you need. You'll be saved from wrath and saved to life. Life that is everlasting. Life that is full. Life that is with me. Saved from the wrath to come and saved to eternal life. Saved to your inheritance that is kept for you in heaven. Kept secure by me where it cannot be touched. This is 1 Peter 1. Though now for a little while you may be hard pressed in all kinds of ways. Yep. He's talking about that for sure. But lift up your eyes and see the inheritance that is in heaven. You will be saved to that. Unless you say, that's not worth it. Give me this pot of stew right now. There's nothing easy about this, guys, but it's true. There is a now and there is a not yet, and when the not yet comes, you've got to be on the right side of the line. Faithful to him, enduring. This is the the hard medicine that is helpful in the midst of hard hardness. In, in a way, I, I think, so th- as I thought about all this, I think some, somebody could say, well, this is super easy for you to say because, I mean, you've got a pretty comfortable life and you live in America and that's not going to happen anyway, not in our lifetimes. So, so, I don't know. I mean, I guess it is easy for me to say. It's easy for us to say here. But it's the truth. It's what Jesus says. And I think that beneath all of our difficulties of dealing with being laughed at by the lunchroom or the 
the break room crowd, beneath all those difficulties really is, I I fear them and what they're going to take from me. And beneath that, even for us in safe America, beneath that really is the call of don't fear men. Fear God. And hope in him. He saves you from wrath and saves you to life. If your eyes are captured by what this life here offers you and what might be taken, then you will be controlled by those who control those things. And if your life is actually set on God and what he gives you, your life will be controlled by God. Choose this day whom you will serve. This applies to all of us in in all kinds of different ways. I think even in currently safe America. We can't eliminate the the persecution. We we can't make it go away. But a last little sub-point here, just thrown in in one verse. We can't eliminate the persecution. We can't make it go away. But that doesn't mean that we always have to stay under it right there. It's permissible to leave. Wise, prudent, might mean move on. Verse 23. It's permissible to stay there and and deal with that, but prudence might mean that I should move on to another place when persecuted in this one and minister there. Notice he doesn't say just be quiet. He assumes they will move on and minister in the next town and in the next town because, frankly, there's a great big wide open harvest field with lots of standing grain. You don't have to get stuck here. Move over there and harvest. But harvest. We're in the harvest. There'll be more than enough work more than enough places to work in. It's permissible to flee from, to avoid, to get out from under the persecution. We don't always have to endure under it. Sometimes we can endure away from it. But all of it, whatever it is, if you're, if you're staying under, if you're speaking, if you're enduring great hardship, if you're moving on to somewhere else to strike up a new ministry setting, it only works if your eyes are set on the Lord who's in it, who's up to something, who will be your help, and who promises to save you from the wrath to come to life. That's where Jesus begins his instruction to us about persecution. This is the truth, hard as it is. We stand in it, and I think we should also be careful that we, we're Christians here, and if we engage, maybe even Maybe even with somebody sitting here in the room or maybe even with somebody that you go talk to later, you engage with a non-Christian. We don't assume, a, we don't come at them like this. Or, you know, like this. <laughs> Innocent as doves. I set on God, prudent and wise. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us to balance all this out and to look at what prudence means, what wisdom means, what 
what careful thoughtfulness means and what vulnerability looks like. Would you help us also to balance out and be careful with dependence on you, dependence on you for the right things, for words to say, for your, your mission to be advanced, for you to give us life, not the world here. Lord, we look to you, we hope in you. We want to persevere faithful to you, so please help us lift up our eyes and turn them onto you and onto an eternal perspective. And make us, even as we view these hard things, make us not hard. Hard things, but not hard. Make us soft. Still full of compassion for the world that's wandering around lost. It's Jesus' approach, and it's to be ours, so help us with that, please. Thank Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.